For another perspective on surgical issues in breast cancer, I met with Dr. Stephen Edge, who began our conversation by commenting on current trends in the use of mastectomy. A real area of interest is what might be called the resurgence of the use of mastectomy for treatment of breast cancer. And the paper that stands out as the seminal report regarding this was a series from the Mayo Clinic reported at ASCO in June that got a lot of press now. It's a single institution series and has all sorts of potential biases. It literally could be that the results we're about to talk about could have been caused by a single surgeon changing their practice or a single surgeon joining the practice or a single increase in the use of genetic testing or the referral biases or the referral practices. But they reported that temporarily related to the use of MRI that the use of mastectomy rose. So over the 1990s, the percentage of women with stage 0, 1, and 2 breast cancer at the Mayo Clinic who had surgical treatment for breast cancer, that about in 1995, something on the order of 40% of them had mastectomy. And that dropped down to somewhere in the mid-20s by 2001, 2002. And about that time, they started using MRI more aggressively for staging breast cancers. And the rate of mastectomy has risen to about 45% of breast cancers in the last reported year, which was 2006. The use of MRI went from about 10% to somewhere about 30 or 35% of women. They also showed, this has only been published in abstract form, but they showed that the women who had MRI had mastectomy rates as high as 60%. Of course, there's the selection bias of who got MRI. If we look at the NCCN Outcomes Database, actually, for exactly the same time frame, the rate of mastectomy is actually unchanged. But I think most of us anecdotally are seeing in our practices that more people are coming in and talking about mastectomy and even considering bilateral mastectomy in settings where five years ago the question would probably not have even been raised. I actually have a couple of women who are actually pretty good friends in my practice right now who have just both been diagnosed with ductal carcinoma in situ. And it's an interesting contrast because one of them has a eight or nine centimeter area of enhancement on MRI, and she needs a mastectomy. She very much wanted breast conservation. Her friend has a one centimeter focus of DCIS, and her mother had breast cancer, but there's been genetic testing in the family. There's no inherited susceptibility, but she came in saying, I'm not going to talk to you unless you agree to do bilateral mastectomy. It's been very interesting watching these two friends go through a very different process. They're both ending up with a mastectomy, but one of them who didn't want it is going to have to have it. The other one who really doesn't need it is going to have bilateral mastectomy. I saw another woman yesterday who has a one-centimeter breast cancer near the periphery of her breast in the upper portion of the breast and said the same thing. She basically said, that's an interesting discussion you had about how I don't need mastectomy because it's a small cancer at the periphery of the breast, but I'm here to have bilateral mastectomy. And she only has distant relatives with breast cancer, but she's had multiple biopsies in the past. I think many of us are seeing more people coming in and wanting a mastectomy. There's a real interesting literature over the last couple of years that's come out of a group primarily at the University of Michigan under Dr. Hawley and Dr. Katz. Steve Katz at the University of Michigan has worked with a group in the Detroit region and the Los Angeles region with SEER data and has actually gone and interviewed women who have had breast cancer and has interviewed their doctors and has asked questions about how did you make your decisions regarding breast conservation versus mastectomy. And 
did you make the decision or was this a shared decision or was this your doctor's decision? And has even looked as whether the doctor recommended breast conservation or and the patient wanted mastectomy and took this as some form of conflict. They used the term conflict between the physician's recommendation and the patient's desires. And the findings are quite telling, and that is that women who made their decisions were much more likely to have mastectomy. And even more telling to me, and actually this has forced me to change my practice, that women who were treated by physicians who were at high-volume centers and large cancer centers were more likely to be in conflict with their doctor, suggesting that those of us who work in big centers push breast conservation on women who don't really want it. What do you think the thinking is in terms of what these women are thinking? Obviously, there's an issue in terms of avoiding local recurrence, which is real. What are your thoughts about this? Well, I think when I counsel these women, I try to step back. And actually, this paper by Dr. Katz forced me to step way back because, you know, over the 1990s in communities around the country, there were many surgeons who were doing mastectomies that were really not necessary. So we really were on that bandwagon of trying to help women understand why they didn't necessarily need mastectomy. But it's forced me to step back and really listen to these women more carefully. But they're asking for this because of their fear about recurrence, their experiences that they know somebody who's had a lumpectomy and it's come back. That was one of the explanations I heard yesterday from this woman. Well, my neighbor and my neighbor's friend both had a lumpectomy and it came back. They have seen relatives die of breast cancer, and they want to do everything. They will have young children. They understand logically that the data demonstrate that they have the same risk of dying of breast cancer, whether they have lumpectomy or mastectomy, but their hearts tell them that they want a mastectomy. And at some point, I do tell them, don't fight your gut feeling, because between the hours of midnight and 6 a.m., you're the only one awake worrying about it, and you're the one who has to live with it. But the flip side of it is I'm not fully convinced that people are well informed about this, and I think that even our profession is a little bit remiss in giving people information about this. If you go back to the historical clinical trials, the local failure rate is substantially higher among women who have breast conservation. The BO6 trial says that 12 or 13 percent of women with breast conservation had local recurrence, compared to only 2 or 3 or 4 percent of those women who have mastectomy. But Overall, those women can be salvaged with breast conservation to a higher extent, and we have the same survival in the long run. And that's the rationale we've used to use breast conservation. I started my surgical training in 1979. That was three years after the BO6 trial started. The BO6 trial is now a generation old. It's an historical trial. That trial was done when Surgeons were just learning to do lumpectomy. I mean, my understanding is that the NSABP had workshops for surgeons and pathologists on how to do lumpectomy. I certainly in 1979 and 1980 did not do a breast-conserving operation as a junior resident for breast cancer. That study was done prior to the use of systemic therapy in women with node-negative breast cancer. So it, of course, was the landmark trial, but it is now primarily of historical interest, and it doesn't really represent what we do for patients now. There are now large series of women who are treated with breast conservation who have local failure rates in the low single digits. If we look at the Canadian trial of actually of radiation versus no radiation, the radiation arm in women who had hormone receptor positive cancers over age 50 who are treated with hormonal therapy and radiation, the local failure rate is 1%. If you look at the CALGB trial of women who are over age 70 who receive radiation and hormonal therapy, the local failure rate is 
If you look at the Milan series, the local failure rate is 2%. So for the large majority of women that we're treating with breast conservation now, the women who are in their 50s or 60s or 70s who have small hormone receptor positive breast cancers, the local failure rates are not 10 or 12 or 15%. The local failure rates are extremely low. It's become a very infrequent occurrence in my office and that of my colleagues around the country. The flip side is patients assume that mastectomy means it's all gone. And the more I read about local recurrence after mastectomy, the more I recognize that the local failure rates are real. It's a little hard to find apples to compare to apples in this because there really isn't a good trial, a modern trial that compares this. And you rely on looking at series of women treated with mastectomy who had larger tumors or positive nodes. But in the early breast cancer trialist collaborative group overview published three years ago, the local failure rate among women with negative nodes treated with mastectomy was 5%. And that 3 to 5% figure, I think, rings pretty true for women with node-negative breast cancer who are treated with mastectomy. And of course, if you go to node-positive breast cancer, the local failure rates with mastectomy and no radiation are in the double digits. And every clinical trial, every cooperative group here in the United States that's looked at that, the women who've received American axillary dissections and chemotherapy on a clinical trial have seen the 10, 15, and 20 percent local failure rates for women with positive nodes. You mentioned MR. How do you think that's figuring into this equation in practice, and how do you use MR yourself? Yeah. Well, MR is being done much more frequently. Patients are asking about it. I find it very hard to quantify when it should or should not be done. The data do not demonstrate that women who have fatty replaced breasts can avoid MRI. We would all like to think that women who have the fatty replaced breasts, that the additional information for MRI is likely to be less, but at least in the screening setting, the data demonstrate that that's probably not true. So I have a hard time saying this woman should or should not get an MRI. And there's a lot of consternation about this. There's a lot of discussion. There's debates at all the meetings now as to the pros and cons of MRI. Remember that all the outcome data that we just discussed regarding local failures with breast-conserving surgery with the single digits, low single-digit local failure rates were from patients treated in the pre-MRI era. So we have to question what are we really gaining by doing MRIs. Of course, they're also treated in the whole breast radiation therapy era. But we use MRI when we have larger tumors, when we have women with dense breasts where it's embedded in an area of dense glandular tissue and we don't know the size of it. And the problems are that we frequently find abnormalities that we then have to further evaluate. Biopsies, frequently we don't see the mammogram or uh, ultrasound, and so we're forced to do MRI-guided biopsies, which are very tedious. It puts people through a lot of biopsies, and I think many of them get freaked out and say, well, it's just easier to do a mastectomy. And even though you try not to do the mastectomy on the basis of the MRI finding, it will push some women into mastectomy. What are some of the other local therapy issues that are being discussed right now at breast cancer surgical forums? Well, I think we're still talking a lot about the issue of completion axillary node dissection with micromets. Unfortunately, the large clinical trial that we were doing to try to address whether people needed a completion axillary dissection with positive sentinel nodes failed. In other words, we were unable to accrue enough patients into the ACASOG Z11 trial. So a couple of years ago, that study was closed. We will get eventually the follow-up data on the six or 700 women who were on the trial, but they came nowhere near the target accruals. And I think we're stuck in this zone where we don't know what to do with these patients. I'm seeing this a lot in my practice. I have two women recently in my practice who've had their 
surgery at other major centers and then are coming to Buffalo for a variety of reasons. Believe it or not, people actually move from California to <laughs> Buffalo. <laughs> and a woman who'd had neoadjuvant chemotherapy at a major center on the West Coast moved here, and she'd had a sentinel node biopsy at the time of her excision after neoadjuvant therapy. She'd had not a complete response in the breast. She had minimal disease in a single node, and the surgeon did not want to do the completion actually node dissection. I believe their tumor board at this hospital recommended that they do it, but she hadn't had it done. She came here and asked our opinion when she moved to Buffalo. And I saw a patient yesterday with a very similar story. She'd had a three-centimeter cancer, and the sentinel node had shown a small metastasis that was not recognized during surgery, and she's actually subsequently had to undergo mastectomy because of positive margins, yet they did not do the completion actually no dissection. Now she's finished her mastectomy with reconstruction. She still had residual disease after her chemotherapy. She had the mastectomy after she finished the chemotherapy, had residual disease, came to Roswell Park to see the medical oncologist for an opinion who said, well, you should have a completion actually no dissection. So... I don't know what the right answer is. I'd like to believe we don't need to do it. We certainly can control the disease with radiation therapy. But I don't think we have any better data now than we had a few years ago on this. Both of these women I just talked about have already received, you know, anthracycline, cyclophosphamide, and uh, taxane. One of them has a hormone receptor negative. One has a hormone receptor positive tumor. The only difference it would make in their therapy, actually, is that if they had multiple nodes involved, they'd get radiation therapy after a mastectomy. But I don't think we have better data on this, and I think we're in a time when we really don't know what to do with these people. You mentioned the issue of sentinel node and patients getting neoadjuvant therapy. What are your thoughts in terms of the timing mm -hmm. of sentinel node in those patients? There's a lot of controversy about that. All right. The data are conflicting. Sentinel node seems to identify the nodes that are involved, whether the sentinel node is done before or after surgery. The data supporting sentinel node prior to chemotherapy is actually quite scant. Every time I try to review that, you always come up with a series of 20 patients or 40 patients or 60 patients. And people simply rely on the theory that you're more likely to identify the people correctly that they have positive nodes if you do it before surgery because they might have a response and they theorize that if you have the response that you may incorrectly identify that they've had a complete response and when they actually have disease in the other lymph nodes and but it's all theory, and there is no strong data. The data on post-neoadjuvant chemotherapy sentinel node demonstrates that you identify the node most of the time, that you will find positive nodes in a fair number of people, and some of those people will have additional lymph nodes involved. The local failure rates really have not been reported in that, but the number of local failures you'll expect to see will be very low. There was just another large series published from Europe on post-neoadjuvant chemotherapy sentinel node demonstrating the same thing that was seen in the NSABBP27 trial. So we really don't have an answer on the question. Maybe we should not be staging the nodes at all and just radiate the axilla. Anything else has come out in terms of surgical management you want to comment on? The issue of intraoperative evaluation of sentinel nodes continues to fester here. We don't really know the best way to do this. And most people around the country are doing some form of intraoperative evaluation with either touch prep cytology or frozen section. And Virtually every series has shown that you have a, you know, a 20% false negative rate. And if you believe you should be going back to do actually no dissection, then you have to go back and do the actually no dissection. And whether it's frozen section or touch press cytology, it's the same. There is this technique that's been developed of a rapid PCR a technique for identifying a disease. The manufacturers state that it's calibrated to only detect real metastases and not micrometastases. 
There are small series that have been published. Some of those papers have some very prominent people on them. And the theory is that by this more accurate identification of interoperability, you will save a few people going back to the operating room for a completion, actually no dissection. The number of people we're talking about is very small. Not many centers that I'm aware of have actually implemented it. There's a few centers around the country, including a couple of prominent academic centers, that don't do any intraoperative evaluation and take all patients, do the sentinel node, and then come back at a later date for the completion, actually no dissection. I don't think there's any good answer to this question either. What do you do yourself? We do touch prep cytology. When it shows something atypical, the pathologist may choose to freeze it if they think they have enough node. I'm not actually enthusiastic about freezing because I'm always concerned they may destroy the node by the frozen section. So I prefer when they are unable to say a positive node on touch prep cytology to simply defer to the permanent sections. And once in a while, I have to come back and do a node dissection. It's only problematic if we've done a tram flap with a microvascular anastomosis in the axilla. And that circumstance comes up very seldom. I do actually know of one center that actually takes people who are going to have breast reconstruction and takes them to the operating room a week early and does the sentinel node biopsy as a separate procedure so that they have that information prior to doing the reconstruction. It's an interesting strategy. It doesn't come up very often in our practice. What about partial breast irradiation? Anything new and exciting? The studies on PBI are all maturing. The long-term follow-up data only come from a very limited series. There's just been a couple of review articles summarizing this just in the last few weeks where it's surprising to me how little data there are and how short the follow-up is on all of these studies, two, three, four-year follow-ups on 50 or 100 patients. The American Society of Breast Surgeons Registry itself only has two- or three-year follow-up, and two- or three-year follow-up isn't telling the story. We all want PBI to work. We all believe it very likely will result in low failure rates. My personal bias is that I suspect a lot of the people who are being treated with PBI fall into a group of people where the value of radiation therapy itself may come into question. People who have small hormone receptor positive tumors who are in their 60s or 70s. The CALGB clinical trial demonstrates that the clinical value of radiation therapy is actually quite low in women who are over age 70 with a local failure rate of 7 to 8% without radiation therapy with small hormone receptor positive cancers. The Canadian trial with a 15% local failure rate in women over age 50 in the same setting. So if PBI has a local failure to 5% and no radiation therapy has a local failure rate of 7%, I'm not sure what we're gaining. Unfortunately, the money comes in a lot here because the reimbursement schedules are, and the way that this is built makes it very favorable to do it. There are many people in my community, many people in communities around the country who are using it outside of clinical trials. We still remain pretty academic. We're extremely active on the NSABP trial of partial breast radiation therapy. We're not doing as much. I'd like to get a trial of intraoperative radiation therapy going. We're having trouble how we're going to get reimbursed for it. And, of course, it's all very expensive. Intraoperative radiation therapy is a real attractive option. If you can do partial breast radiation, why would anyone want to have to go for five full days of radiation therapy when you can do it in the operating room? But all of this has to be proven. The stakes are pretty high, though. If we fail with partial breast radiation therapy, the stakes are pretty high. There's an awful lot of women at risk. And we've seen now from the early breast cancer collaborative trials group that local control probably does have an impact on survival. And as we're doing so well with systemic therapy and so well at predicting who's going to do well, that it would be a shame to miss the boat here and make a mistake. I'm curious when you interact with surgeons, maybe giving talks or seeing patients with them, what are some of the common questions they ask you? about breast cancer? I'm getting a lot of questions about sentinel node biopsy and DCIS. 
a lot of questions about reconstruction and mastectomy and radiation therapy. You were asking earlier about data that's new on this subject, and there really aren't. We're still in the same quandary of what we should do with radiation therapy with mastectomy. We're still in this quandary because another clinical trial failed because we didn't fill the SWOG trial with women with one to three positive nodes, which is a fairly common occurrence now in our practices, and we don't know what to do with those women. You know, the Danish and the British Columbia trials all showed survival advantages for any women with positive nodes, and I'm unwilling to criticize them because they didn't do the American axillary node dissection. So were I a young woman who had a real macromet in one node, and I had a tumor for which I needed to have mastectomy, I'd go to the radiation oncologist. I've got young children. If it gives me a 3% or a 5% survival advantage, well, that may be as much as I'm going to get with chemotherapy. So, And then we know that that may impact on the success of reconstruction. On the other hand, if a woman doesn't have immediate breast reconstruction, we know that most of those women will never go on to have reconstruction. We're in a quandary, and I think surgeons are in a quandary of what to do in that circumstance. What do you generally do? We take people and do reconstruction when we think the probability of positive nodes is low. With larger tumors or certainly locally advanced breast cancers, we simply do not do immediate breast reconstruction. At that point, I think the cosmetics have to take the back seat to treating cancer. What about the issue you mentioned of sentinel node and DCIS? You know, there were the seminal papers that came out of the Moffitt Center and Memorial Sloan Kettering where they did immunohistochemistry on a large series of women, one center of which was an unselected series of women with any DCS, and the other was limited to those women who had what might be considered higher risk based on the grade or size of the DCS. And they found some disease in the nodes in as many as 10% of women. That was most often detected only by immunohistochemistry and isolated tumor cells by immunohistochemistry. There's pretty good data. There's a nice paper that came out in the last year demonstrating that when you look retrospectively at women who'd had DCIS and mastectomy and then went back and looked at those nodes with immunohistochemistry 15 years later, found 7 or 8% of them had disease in the node, that the long-term survival was not lower for those women who had that immunohistochemical detected disease in the nodes. We don't do sentinel node biopsy with DCIS. Sentinel node biopsy is not risk-free. Every surgeon you talk to will say, I don't see any lymphedema in people who have sentinel node biopsy. Yet, in the NSABP trial, 5% of the women had measurable differences in arm circumference on the sentinel node arm. Memorial Sloan Kettering published a series in the last year where 5% of those women had measurable difference in arm circumference. So, you know, it's not complication-free. And I have seen women get aggressive chemotherapy for the isolated disease in the nodes for DCIS. Actually, we have a fellow right now looking at the use of sentinel node biopsy with mastectomy for DCIS at our center. Most of us do sentinel node biopsy when we have a preoperative diagnosis of DCIS because we will preclude the ability to do it if we define invasive cancer in the sample. A surprising fraction of our patients who had a preoperative diagnosis of DCIS ended up having invasive cancer, and about a quarter of those women had positive nodes. Of the women who ended up having only DCIS, so 150 women who had only DCIS who were treated with mastectomy over the last five or 10 years, none of them had positive nodes. We do it with mastectomy, but we don't do it with breast conservation. But I think a lot of surgeons around the country are. Interestingly, I've had the privilege to go visit with some surgeons in Japan recently, and they are very aggressively doing sentinel node biopsy with any patient with DCIS. 
Let's chat a little bit about some of the systemic issues that have come up in management of breast cancer. One I want to ask you about is the Oncotype DX assay and what your perception is about how it's affected management and particularly what you see is the surgeon's role and what situations the surgeon should be ordering it and what situations should the patient just be sent to a medical oncologist for that decision. Yeah. Well, we can go through all the arguments about how we can get the same level of prediction by very well done grade and very well done quantitative ERPR with good all-rad scores and the like. And, you know, it's probably correct that you can probably do it. But the fact of the matter is the data are really compelling on the use of Oncotype. And were I a woman who had a intermediate size, hormone receptor positive, node-negative breast cancer, I'd want Oncotype. You know, I would want to avoid chemotherapy if I could be told that I have a low score, as half the women do at least, and be comfortable that hormonal therapy alone was sufficient and that I would derive no added benefit from chemotherapy. It's almost a no-brainer. I would want to know that I have a high score and that I have a substantial chance of recurrence and that actually the hormonal therapy alone is insufficient I wouldn't go so far as saying the hormonal therapy is unnecessary, though perhaps new data suggests that, that might be true, but I certainly would take the hormonal therapy after I finish chemotherapy. I'm not sure why we would not be doing Oncotype. We generally aren't doing it ourselves. We send people to medical oncologists because if they're going to get chemotherapy anyway, then we don't need to do it, and if they're simply going to say no. But on the other hand, that inherently throws in another two-week delay, and they're getting the result because by the time they see us, they go to the medical oncologist, they have the discussion, then the insurance coverage has to be checked, and they finally get the slides sent. You know, it's now six weeks after their surgery before they get the result. Maybe our reticence to simply send the oncotype when we have the woman who's got the hormone receptor positive, throw in her two negative breast cancer that's, say, over a centimeter in size with negative nodes, maybe our reticence to do that should disappear and we just should start ordering it like we do the hormone receptor test because it really does offer advantages to patients. And I will declare immediately that I do not have any financial interest in Oncotype. What are your thoughts about some of the data that's come out now over the past year looking at Oncotype in patients with node-positive tumors? And have you had any of your patients that have had Oncotype where that's been helpful? Yeah, well, we have not done it, but it's certainly intriguing. And they still have a substantial risk of recurrence, but they certainly appear to have in these relatively smaller series of patients, much less benefit from chemotherapy. Though women with positive nodes certainly have a higher risk, and you hate to turn away therapy that might really be beneficial. It would be wonderful if we had much better data on that. The other thing that's happened in terms of archetype that's been kind of interesting is now they've been reporting quantitative ER mm -hmm. and HER2, and it really kind of leads into the whole question of ER and HER2 testing in general. What are your thoughts about this? There's a lot of concern that in many situations this isn't getting done right, so to speak. Going back to my internship, when you look at a hematocrit, you have to wonder that the you know the first thing you do when you have potassium was 6.2 is ask whether somebody shook the tube of blood on the way to the lab. And you have to do the same thing now with hormone receptor assays and HER2 assays. You really have to be sure that they're being done in a quality lab, and you have to question a result that doesn't make sense. And both the um, group at NCCN and a collaborative group between CAP and ASCO have carefully looked at this issue and developed standards for HER2 testing. Similar efforts are underway to define standards for hormone receptor testing. One doesn't have to look very far to see the population-wide effects 
of inaccurate hormone receptor testing, and I don't know all the specifics, but in Newfoundland and Labrador, hundreds of women had inaccurate hormone receptor testing. And apparently, and again, I don't know all the facts, but hundreds of women were either not given hormonal therapy or inappropriately treated with hormonal therapy for breast cancers. And we all have to be really concerned that many lives were lost because of that. Just yesterday, my data manager picked up a woman who came to us after receiving all of her therapy in the community, including trastuzumab, came to us because her tumor was breaking down and hadn't responded, and she came to the big center to have further therapy, and we had to do a big mastectomy on her. And I'm embarrassed that I didn't see this when it first came through, but our reading on the pathologist said that the HER2 was 2+, plus, where it had been read as 3+, plus from the community laboratory. And our laboratory went and did fish on it, and she's clearly not amplified, and she's received six months of trastuzumab. down the drain, and we didn't help her. So this testing issue is a big, big problem in the United States, and I think it behooves us to be sure that the testing is on the laboratory that has the standards that are appropriate, and I think doctors need to be very careful to be assured that their patients are getting done in a laboratory that meets appropriate standards. It's now been, I guess, a little bit more than, I guess, about three and a half years since the initial data on adjuvant trastuzumab has been presented. Any thoughts in terms of how this has impacted in terms of basically practice of breast cancer? The data are so overwhelmingly compelling that it's wonderful. You take women who have a very bad breast cancer and you give them substantial additional hope. It's been wonderful. Luckily, only a quarter of women have HER2 positive cancers because, you know, we talk about triple negative cancers, but in fact, if you don't use trastuzumab, the worst cancer are the hormone receptor negative HER2 positive cancers. That's sort of been lost in all the discussion of triple negatives is that the HER2 positive cancers actually fare worse without therapy. So it's been a wonderful advance and hopefully the harbinger of things to come in the future. We have done quite a few patterns of care studies, docs in the United States. Mainly they've been oncologists, but last year we did a study on surgeons. And in addition to asking them about local therapy issues, we also asked them about systemic therapy issues. And I was actually very pleasantly surprised at the level of knowledge of general surgeons, not necessarily breast surgeons, Mm -hmm. but general surgeons in the United States about systemic issues. We gave them cases, asked them to tell us what they thought the recurrence rates were with and without different treatments, for example, and they were pretty well on target. The one area, though, that I was a little bit surprised of was there was a little bit, I would say, of a lack of appreciation of the long-term natural history of estrogen receptor positive cancer and the concept of how commonly recurrences are after, you know, five or even 10 years Mm -hmm. of diagnosis. Any comments about that whole arena? Well, I think we're all a little complacent about people who are five and 10 years out. Recurrences really do happen. Not that there's anything we should be doing to screen for those recurrences, We should certainly be quite attentive to the value of prolonged hormonal therapy for women who've taken tamoxifen for five years, which you're still seeing a lot of those women coming off tamoxifen now. The problem is, what should you be doing to screen these women? There's a lot of women out there. While certainly it is an issue, the numbers of women who have recurrences after 10 years is pretty small, but you certainly see it. I mean, we had a woman who's had a T1 breast cancer 15 years ago whose doctor did liver function tests for some reason. Her liver was full of tumor, and of course it was her original breast cancer. It's very disturbing. Breast cancer, it's not quite like melanoma, but it's there until you die. If something else, you still have a risk of dying of breast cancer. 
I guess one issue that you referred to is whether or not these women should be started on aromatase inhibitor. We do know that it looks like that even, you know, five and ten years down the line that these drugs still can affect recurrence rate. Mm -hmm. How do you approach that as you see women coming through your practice, particularly the women maybe who got tamoxifen and have been off it for a couple years or a few years? Right. Well, we've been fairly academic about it. The people who have been off it for a few years, we generally have not restarted on hormonal therapy. But we've been pretty aggressive about switching people to aromatase inhibitors after five years of tamoxifen. I always wonder whether we should do that with the 75- and 80-year-old women who had a T1A or T1B breast cancer, where you can even question the value of hormonal therapy to begin with. But for people who have more aggressive cancers, there's no reason why they should not continue hormonal therapy. Anything that you want to add to what you said today? I'd like to go back to the issue about the choice of mastectomy. I think this is something where surgeons need to do some introspection and need to see how they're presenting this to patients and how they are setting the stage for this discussion. Because while I did raise the question that perhaps we're misleading patients about the local failure issue, I think we have to be careful about it because I think surgeons do mislead patients about that. They tend to give the body language or the open language that mastectomy leads to much lower failure rates in the breast. On the other hand, we need to keep listening to our patients. And perhaps just having the discussion with our patients, surgeon to patient, isn't sufficient for decision support. There's a real interesting literature developing on the decision support. How do we help people come to the decisions with which they will be comfortable in the long term? A really nice paper published actually just two weeks ago here, early in January of 2009, on a decision support tool that's been used in the clinics at the Dartmouth Clinics in New Hampshire, where patients receive educational materials and a video prior to meeting with the surgeon. It's actually, it's a real interesting program because it's embedded in a preclinic screening system which even identifies psychologic distress. If they hit a certain score on a psychological distress profile, the nurses in the clinic and the doctors are alerted to this and there are automatic referrals made to social service and psychology support even before the doctor sees the patient. But they've identified that patients who go through this may actually change their feelings about mastectomy, and they communicate this to the doctor. And not only do they have a few extra people who have mastectomy, but that the patients are generally more comfortable with their decisions in the long run. So I think we as surgeons and medical oncologists need to be introspective about how we're communicating to patients, and maybe we aren't the only people who should be communicating to patients. And maybe in our very busy days, and all of us breast surgeons are getting busier and busier and busier, Maybe we need to be sure we're stepping back and really listening to our patients.